This program is brought to you by Brining Institute, which has provided higher education, training, testing, and certification for addiction professionals since 1986. When you're, when you're in a conflict with CFR 42, and you're conflicted with the law which says you can't disclose without their consent, and one of those exceptions that says you can in certain instances, then um, what's the quickest and easiest way to resolve those things? Even before talking to your boss, what's the quickest, easiest way to resolve? Let's just say you're working in a program, um, parole agent comes to the door, says, I have got to see my client right away. You're not, you don't know who this person is. You haven't checked the file. He says, I've got to see my client right away. We may have a serious problem here. What's the quickest, easiest way to resolve this without breaking the law? Exactly. Just have the guy sit down and say, give me a minute, please. Someone will get back to you. Go to your client and say, your PO is outside. He needs to talk to you. It's not going to help you to hide or run. You know, I, I've, I've been doing this work a long time, and I can count on one hand the number of times I've seen anybody yank somebody out of a program and stick them in jail. If the client is in a program, that's where they want him. If he's doing well, that's where the PO wants him. The quickest, easiest way to resolve this is go talk to your client. You know, is this somebody that you want to know that you're here and you want us to be able to give information about? Well, then you need to sign a release, okay? But if the client comes out and approaches his PO on his own, you haven't, you, you didn't give out that information. He did. He walked out and said, here I am. Let's deal with it. Okay, maybe the case could be made that you, because you left and then, and then the client came out, the PO went, aha, he went and told the client. So maybe you do need to come back and maybe it'd be better to have the client sign that release and then go talk to his PO. But the quickest, easiest way to resolve it is with their consent. The more times you get into a conflict between somebody needing that information and the client resisting you wanting to give that out, the more problems you're going to have with this. So always go for the quickest, easiest route is encourage the client to do the right thing. Break. We have to let our clients know about this law coming into the program. So part of your admission package needs to talk about CFR 42 and remind them that their rights are protected and that their confidentiality is protected even before they sign any releases. As soon as matter of fact, even when they call in, if you put them on the waiting list, you should notify. I don't know that many programs that do, but you should notify them right then and there. Their information is covered because the main, the, getting back to why they developed this law, because of the stigma and discrimination, what's the biggest number one challenge for counselors when you meet a new client? Trust. Trust. Bingo. You guys are good. Trust. They have to really, really believe that you are going to keep their information in the strictest confidence because most of us, when we come in, we think we're a horrible little piece of doo-doo and nobody has ever heard stories like ours. And we don't feel like we can tell anybody. We don't feel like we can trust anybody. So this is a sacred trust in writing that you give them that say, I'm going to put my neck on the line for you to make sure that people don't know you're here and your, your information is treated in the strictest confidence. And when you back that up with action, and they hear you on the phone backing that up with action, and they see you stopping police at the door and backing it up with action, their trust level starts to go up. And then they start to open up to you and then you get that therapeutic bond going, and then you can help them. You can't help them until you get that bond. 
If they don't trust you, they're not going to tell you the truth, they're not going to open up, and they're not going to get anything out of treatment. So confidentiality ties right into motivational interviewing. This is not some theoretical thing on the wall. This is a sacred trust. And you can, you can use those words and tell them, this is a sacred trust you and I are entering into. You can tell me anything, and it's not going to leave this program. Internal program communications. This is where every agency has to decide what program means. And when I worked for Alameda County, after we merged with mental health, and they have a whole different set of operating laws, and they were trying to build this system of care with all their mental health programs and all the alcohol and drug programs, they said, well, we're going to define program as all of the agencies and this whole agency that runs them. And, and all of us alcohol and drug people went, no, 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 no. You're saying that we can talk to any agency in town back and forth without a release? Well, yeah, and we said, no, 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 we're not going to do that. I mean, I was working for the county. I said, this is a big mistake. That's not what they mean by program. And eventually their own attorney said, yeah, that's, that's stretching it. I worked for another agency where there was detox in one end of the building, outpatient in the other. We couldn't talk to each other because that program manager, the, the administrator of Sonoma County said, I don't think the outpatient staff needs to know all the information about detox clients and vice versa. Unless they know they're going to work together, then you'll do a release. So even within the same agency, Sonoma County Alcohol and Drug Services, they had firewalls between the programs. We had to have a release for detox to talk to residential, to talk to outpatient, to talk to DUI, to talk to aftercare. So each agency has to decide what program means. And again, the two guiding influences are need to know. So if the folks up front in the front of the building don't need to know, then you shouldn't be giving them information without a release. And is it going to do the client any harm? Probably not. If you're all working for the same cause, then it's hard to imagine how you know, the outpatient staff would see something that happens in detox and turn the guy away. But it could happen. So. Um, where are we? Let's get a little more flesh on the bone with these disclosures without consent. So again, internal communications within the program as you define it and still based on need to know. So if there's four counselors working at Cronin House where I used to work, we had all of our files in one file. Does that mean that every counselor can go into the other client's files and read everything in there? How many people say yes? yes. How many people say no? <laughs> and the reason I'm raising both hands is because you still got to answer that question. Do they need to know? Right. Now, you could say, well, we're all working in the same program. It's a social model recovery program. We don't split it up. Your clients, my clients. We're all here to help all clients. Therefore, we all need to have access to those files. I would probably say, yeah, that's OK. But. <clears throat> If you had an outpatient program that was running groups all across the seven-day calendar and there was no interaction between the groups and there was no interaction between the counselors about those groups, in other words, there's no, if there were no team case management, you might say there isn't a need to know. So I'm going to keep my files over here, you're going to keep yours over there, and you don't get to go in mine unless you've got a real need. So you still got to, you got to wrestle, each agency has to wrestle with this, who needs to know and for what purpose. You can give out information if there's no way in heck that anybody's going to be able to tie it back to that client, but you've got to really, really be sure about that. The medical emergency we talked about. 
Um, and there, it's only what that emergency medical person needs to have on the spot in real time to get them stabilized and into the ambulance and to the hospital. Any medical history or health questionnaire they do not have access to without a release. If you always work with the same hospital, then you might think about setting up a multi-party, a two-way release that everybody signs when they come in. I agree to allow Arenda Center to communicate with Sutter Hospital in Santa Rosa for the purposes of medical, medical services I'm receiving while I'm in treatment here. So you're covered. Um, but again, it's just what that person needs to know. Be anything beyond that needs to be with a release. The valid court order. Okay, so let's go over this one again just to be sure. A, a search warrant doesn't cut it. An arrest warrant doesn't cut it. A subpoena doesn't cover it. You'll get a subpoena and a court order saying, I judge so-and-so hereby instruct Arenda Center to bring me information on this client on this day with or without a release for the purposes of. And then you show up in court with your file and you can state your case why you don't think you should have to give that information out unless you do. But again, talk to the client. Could be the client says, yeah, please, go, let's get this straightened out and then get them to sign a release. Do not stop an officer of the law. We'll get to that in a few minutes. These are so rare, though. I've been in this business 28 years, and I think I've seen, I heard about two of them. I've never been handed one. I've never worked for an agency that got handed one, but I think I've heard, this is so rare, because by this time, you know, the, the client has been really working hard to hide, from, to hide from the criminal justice system or hide from a child custody issue or some other instance where there's a serious decision that needs to be made by the judge and he can't make it without that treatment information. Could be a CPS case. By then, you've already encouraged your client to please get clean with everybody, present yourself, show up, you know, give them the information they need or give you a release to give it. So it's so rare that you get to the point where it's you against the judge, you know. But it has to be a specific court. I wish I had a sample of one, but I've never seen one. But I should try to find one so I could say, this is what it looks like. If you ever see one of these, then, you know, you must, re you must show up on that day or you'll be in contempt. Okay, what to do when the police come a-knocking? We talked about court orders. We talked about the limits on that. Only give the judge what he's asking for and only after a fight. They come in with a subpoena for one of your clients, don't accept it, don't acknowledge the client's there. If they drop it on the floor, I don't know. Call your lawyer. I wouldn't even touch it till I called the lawyer. I'd kick it under the furniture. <laughs> you respond the same way that you would respond on the phone with the script. You have the same script that you give to everybody all the time. And be prepared that the police don't like that. They do not like to be quoted laws they don't know about, especially federal police. I was at Cronin House one day, minding my own business, when here comes these two folks in black jackets, man and a woman, on the back said, U.S. Marshal. Can we talk to you for a minute? Well, yeah, sure. You know, into my office. I sit down and say, have a seat. They're standing. And then they start inching closer to me. We have reason to believe that one of your clients called a threat on the life of the president from this payphone. I'm thinking, what knucklehead did that? And I said, I can't give you out any information because of the federal. They said, no, no, you don't understand. We're the federal marshals. And somebody threatened the president. And you need to tell us who that person was. You need to let us find that. I said, 
folks, it's a federal law I'm quoting to you here. I can't give you a... You know, they're like moving in on me. They said, we're going to take you to jail in handcuffs right now if you don't let us talk to these clients. I went, go ahead, because I'm not breaking the federal law. And they called their sergeant or whatever, and then they left in a big huff. I was scared. I thought I was going to get, you know, I never got arrested once when I was using. Now I'm going to get hauled off in sobriety. It didn't happen. I stood my ground and I just said, look, this is a law that I'm, you know, I'm bound to protect. I'll go to jail if I, if I break this law. So, you know, I'm sorry that you're not aware of it, but this is not good enough for me to go grab clients for you to talk to. If they decided to go roam the hallways, what should I do? Do not stop an officer of the law from doing their job ever. Don't close the door in their face. Don't put a foot in front of them. They will have you on the ground in, you know, in handcuffs and you will go to jail immediately. Um, but you can alert the clients. You can immediately call your boss and get a hold of the, the agency's lawyer and let them know what's going on. You could call the police station and say, this is outrageous. This is illegal. I told them so. And they're storming through my building wreaking havoc with my clients. You can do everything other than say, he's over there. Unless, unless, if some stranger comes running through your building with a TV under his arm and two cops come running in after him, you don't know who that guy is. He's not a client. You say, he went that away. <laughs> you know, try not to knock anybody over as you're going through there. Um, and again, crime on the premises. You can tell him, he's right over there. I had the unfortunate duty one day to have to call a parole agent to come and get one of my clients because he had sexually molested three women. And they finally got the nerve up to come and tell me about it and I, was, I went ballistic. And I thought about it and I talked to my boss. I said, that's a crime. He committed it on the premises and there's every reason to believe he's gonna do it again and he's damaged three of my female clients. I'm calling his parole officer. Gino, are you okay with that? And he said, make the call. So, you know, I had the parole agents in there hiding behind my door. I felt shitty about, I'm sorry, for my, God, I almost made it to 11 o'clock. I felt lousy about having to do that because I care about all my clients. But I can't let him harm these clients. That was his choice to do that. And he's got to have to face the music for it. So sometimes you're going to have to call the police. Unavoidable. When in doubt, you can make an anonymous report. But again, make darn sure that you don't do it from a phone that could be traced back to you or the program. Because then it's not an anonymous report. Somebody could say, oh, you know. Okay, so um, CFR 42 allows us to make child abuse reports. State law requires us to make child abuse reports. And CFR 42 doesn't get in the way of that. It clearly says that um, people can follow state laws regarding child abuse reporting. Child abuse and neglect reporting is permitted only when there is a danger of harm to the child and not merely because a parent has abused drugs or alcohol. The amendment should be applied so it does not dissuade persons from coming forward for drug and alcohol abuse treatment, especially since the children of untreated substance abusers are victims of abuse. In other words, the parent needs to get the treatment, so they need to not worry about us blowing the whistle because they come into group and say, when I was drinking, I beat my kid. That's not a child abuse report. It applies only to initial reports of child abuse or neglect and to a written confirmation of that initial report. 
there, mu there must be some reason to suspect actual or imminent harm to the child. So if they come into group and they say, I just smacked my kid up against the wall and he blacked out for a couple of minutes, but I think he's okay. Would you call that one in? If they say, sometimes I get so angry I feel like strangling the little person. Is that actual or imminent harm? Okay. We all, anybody, how many parents have, have ever had fantasies of, you know, mine pushes me to the wall every day. Bingo. Actual or imminent harm. You have to believe that it's your judgment call on the line here. So you have to believe that there's actual or imminent harm. This amendment clarifies the balance that should be struck between patient confidentiality and child protection. It recognizes that there should be a concern for confidentiality even that the interest of confidentiality does not preclude child abuse reporting. In other words, in other words, you've got to challenge your own thinking and really say, is this actual or imminent harm? Because I'm about to disclose information that might have a negative impact on my client, but I've decided that the, the risk to that child outweigh that. So you've made that relative judgment call. Um, should you do this in a vacuum, or would you call your supervisor before you made that report? I would say unless the, the harm is right in front of you and it's going to happen now, like, you know, I would, um, I would call my boss before I made that report. A and I would probably want to bounce it off at least one or two other people because, again, I want to make sure my judgment isn't flawed here, so I want to get other people's thoughts and reactions. <laughs> I, I really did my homework on this one. I searched everywhere. I could not find any written uh, source that said how alcohol and drug programs are supposed to handle the records of HIV positive patients. All I could fall back on was the wisdom of my elders who said, Dave, the way they set the law up in the mid-80s is still the way it is. If somebody comes in and tells you they're HIV positive, that cannot go into their file and that cannot get shared amongst other staff. You can put in there, person suffers from a chronic health condition. It's kind of a code that everybody accepts. We all know what it is, but basically what I'm saying here is this was established early on to prevent hysteria, and I was there in the 80s when we first started learning about HIV AIDS, and my staff and my clients went nuts. They wouldn't hug each other, they wouldn't kiss each other, they wouldn't even shake hands. It got crazy. And so the first time we had somebody come in and told one of my staff who's HIV positive, the staff member flipped out and came to me and said, what do I do? I said, I don't know. <laughs> this is all new to me too. But we, you know, so this law was set up early on. You can't document it. Now, what do you do if a client, if you send a client down for anonymous or confidential testing, and they come back and they want to report their results to you, and they have a, and they have a test result, what do you do with that? Yeah. They want to tell somebody. Let's say they found out they're positive, and they're upset, and they want to tell somebody. Well, right. You get them referrals for medical help and for counseling, and you talk to them about the protection that nobody's going to find out about this from us. And um, 
and try to help them accept that this is, uh, this could be a result of their disease. They give them counseling when they do those tests. Right, they do give them pre and post test counseling. Yeah, they give them counseling right. so that they wouldn't leave, leave them out go without having counseling. Right. But, but as far as I can tell, um, and I, again, I couldn't find an actual citation. I looked through federal law, I looked through state laws, and I talked to a number of people at CAR, social model recovery systems, county administrators, and they all said, we don't know where the law is written, Dave, but we all agree, you, don't write, you still don't write it down, you don't share it with other staff people. Basically, what we know now is we treat everybody in the program as if they were HIV positive amongst ourselves, and we teach the clients about that between us and the clients, between each other, you know. And we know that you cannot get HIV AIDS by hugging or shaking hands or kissing somebody. So we try to get a little, we get ourselves educated so that we can give them rational, calm information with an assuredness so that we're not still running on old news and hysteria that the only way they're gonna get this is by exchanging bodily fluids. And so if any of us are squeamish about talking about sex, or, or talking about needles, we gotta get over that. Because our clients are gonna depend on us for accurate, objective information, factual information about how not to get this and die. So that we cannot shy away from it for whatever reason, because we're embarrassed, we're ashamed, you know, our moral or religious upbringing says, well, you know, nice girls or boys don't talk about that in group. We gotta get over that, because this is our clients. It's one of the things that affects our clients, so we got to get information and we have to be a little resilient in dealing with it. You got to stay objective, right? And we have to empower our clients with information, not make decisions for them, but give them the information and tell them how to make good decisions about who to sleep with and who to who share needles with or not, you know. It's where harm reduction comes into play. Is it ethical to withhold information from addicts about how to not get AIDS through sharing dirty needles because we believe that we, should, we shouldn't be encouraging them to use needles. We should be encouraging them to get into treatment and be abstinent. There's one of those ethical dilemmas that we have to wrestle with.